Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Thanks for joining me for today's adventure. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Winterton, and Patrick is a referral from Doug Cooper from the last episode. So thank you very much, Doug. When Doug said Patrick has done some interesting open water crossings, he was definitely right. And today, Patrick is going to share a few stories, most notably the impressive St. Brendan's route and the Shetland bus. It's a fascinating conversation filled with ingenuity to make these trips happen. So enjoy today's episode with Patrick Winterton. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Thank you, John. It's, it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I appreciate you joining me today. So what got you started as a paddler? Oh, it goes it goes back ages. I was um, lucky enough. I think circumstance is probably the answer. I was lucky enough to spend a bit of my youth in Norway, on the south coast of Norway. What was I? Nine, ten, something like that. And I was there for four years. And it's just the most remarkable area with fjords and minimal tides generally throughout the summer months and autumn the weather is fantastic and my my father used to run a an out uh, an adventure center in the british forces uh, so he had a toy cupboard that didn't have three boats in it it had 33 and it had uh, every, you know every water sport you could imagine the 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 equipment was there and i had the key um, and, and it basically went from there. And, and I, I think the main thing was that I was, I was sort of given the freedom to, to use it and the freedom to go anywhere, even at sort of 10, 11, uh, I was off paddling the fields on my own and it just seemed normal. Uh, nowadays with my own child, I, I, I have to tip my hat to my parents for, for being so bold. But that's where it started, and and it was just that that freedom to explore that really got me excited. No one else is out there, you know. You can go places no one else can. Uh, and Norway, in addition to having a fantastic coastline, has rivers of every size and shape. So I did a lot of river paddling as a as a kid as well, which I think to be able to cope with big seas is pretty pretty important. You you develop the sort of te- technical side of your paddling. Wow, what a fantastic opportunity as a as a young one. Yeah, uh, just 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 remarkable. I mean, uh, sadly, they sent me to school in England, so I only had it for the sort of holiday periods, uh, which is still one of my biggest regrets. But it's it, it it's a remarkable country and it's very safe. So um, it's it it was just an op- too good an opportunity to miss. Well, that has certainly prepared you for a life of life of adventure, and uh, we've got a couple of things that we're preparing to talk about today. And uh, so the first is you were part of the two man team to make the first crossing from Scotland to the Faroe Islands. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that trip. It, it all started when I f- first uh, moved up to Scotland. I, I, saw, I don't think I'd paddled for 15 years. You know, there was a long spell when I was skiing or studying. I saw an advert for a boat in London. So I drove from Scotland down to London uh, and I came home with four double kayaks and, and two singles, all, <laughs> all, all for my budget of buying one. So I, I, I got all those for a thousand, a thousand pounds. And they must have spent the next three months in my kitchen <laughs> being, <laughs> being done up as you do. And, and then eventually they were ready for trips. And, and the west coast of Scotland, I don't know if you know it, but it's got this fantastic archipelago. And we started with a, a 10 mile trip. And then it went to 20, then it went to 30. And then I, I did an expedition that I called Scottish Extremities. And I basically linked all the islands on the West Coast all the way up to the north of Shetland. And as you go along and you do a bigger trip and more miles and more hours out at sea and bigger conditions, you suddenly realize that you can, you know, the, these kayaks have huge potential for big journeys. So then that became my, my passion. And I always like to link a link an expedition with with a story, a little bit of history. And there's an, a guy called Tim Severin who wrote a wrote a book about St. Brendan, who was supposedly the first Irish sent to make it all the way from the UK across to the States via the Faroe Islands and Newfoundland. His story rather inspired me. So I thought I thought we'd uh, try and paddle paddle from 
Scotland to the Faroes, but it didn't seem right to do that without following the whole of St. Brendan's route. So uh, I paddled from Wales, which is sort of halfway down the west side of the um, UK, across to Ireland, round the west coast of Ireland, picking my way north, picking up the um, St. Brendan's story over on the southwest coast of Ireland, uh, and bit by bit followed it followed it all the way north up through the Scottish islands and then from the outer Hebrides which are on the west side from there we then try to make the jump across to the Faroes which is what just over 200 kilometers yeah so it was a it was a big commitment but it was the first it was the the first big expedition I'd done and it was the first expedition I'd done that wasn't in a guidebook uh, and I think I think that was the appeal. If there wasn't someone telling you how to do it and what kit you needed. So not only did you have to work out where to go from and what the conditions and the tides were going to be like, you also had to work out what equipment you were going to use because, you know, these kayaks aren't designed for spending a night out at sea. <laughs> so how did you, uh, do, so, yeah, how did you go about making that, uh, d- those decisions and what to bring and what to use and how to go about doing that trip. Well, I, I've always believed you learn from your mistakes. So it was it was largely a case of trial and error. And we just did sort of bigger and bigger trips. We spent nights out in the boat trying to work out how you keep your position, obviously how you, how you get the boat stable. And although I'd done most of that St. Brendan trip on my own, I joined up with uh, a friend called Mick Berwick, for the last leg for the leap from Scotland to the to the Faroes so we were both in singles and really all we we were both very aware that and and anyone who's done any big anyone who's paddled I think will realize that five minutes after you stop you get cold so our main concern was how do we stay warm and we designed a tent basically that went over the over the cockpit rim uh, it hooked on just like a spray deck does or a spray cover uh, and it, it had one metal pole that created the hoop and and that that was uh, turned out to be a bit genius because it basically stopped all the conditions you it stopped all the wind coming in stopped the transfer of air uh, and before you know it you've got a sauna in your cockpit that was the number one problem solved actually although when, when you're inside a tent in a kayak you, you do not want to be going over so we then had to work out how to stabilize the boat and for that trip we actually took a paddle shaft and we drilled a hole uh, behind the cockpits if that makes sense and we then threaded the the, the shaft of the paddle through both boats uh, so we in effect created a created a catamaran and <laughs> it it was fine as long as it wasn't rough <laughs> but when it when it was rough we didn't we didn't use that system so we rested when the conditions allowed uh, and and i think the only other thing we did was to create a footrest that allowed you to slide into the cockpit up to your shoulders so the footrest would open up like a sluice gate uh, and then you could slide further in and you could put your you could put your feet on the bulkhead and, and generally rest your head on the back of the cockpit rim. Not comfortable, but I still think I probably had my best two or three hours sleep ever in, in, in that position. So did you have to move the forward bulkhead? No, I, I, I was uh, paddling a tide race boat, which was big. And what am I, 181 centimeters, so I'm not huge. And, and you don't I didn't really want my shoulders to be wedged into the seat. So <laughs> so I was, I was sort of in a what you might call a recliner with the arms resting on the cockpit rim. We we had spare kit uh in a bag just behind our heads and and that worked to treat and then we lined the the whole of the cockpit lined with what we would uh what would you call it a sort of foam similar to the material they use for sleeping mats or they used to use before before the airfield mats came along okay and that that was a that was a great insulator so you weren't you weren't actually resting on the fiberglass at all you were you were comfortably insulated from that so i think i had a probably an inch of insulation under my body interesting okay when you first just started describing the the whole tent concept i'm thinking that sounds like a coffin <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> 
you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and and when we when we tried our next expedition, we we made the tent even smaller and put a put a breathing hole through it and a pipe. Yeah. So I, I, I still have nightmares about what would have happened had we gone over, had we capsized. Yeah. But the system worked anyway. <laughs> it sounds like it's it's changed from a, I mean, if you go over now, it's changed from a breathing pipe to a straw. <laughs> uh <laughs> uh yeah it's it yeah it was a, it was an interesting um development i think we were both happy because we were both happy that it was we were stable enough we we didn't think we were going to be encountering conditions that would turn us over and we knew that if it if we did get those conditions we'd actually be our best bet was to paddle through them rather than try and rest so this is quite a committing trip. I mean, not only the 200-kilometer crossing, but um, all the all the lead-up to the islands and, and such. Now, how long did the entire trip take? In total, we're looking at about seven weeks. Okay. So, yeah, six, pretty much six weeks to get around Ireland and then up to the north of the Hebrides. And then a um, couple of days preparing up, up there. And then... Uh, we had a paddle up the east side of the Hebrides, up the Isle of Lewis, uh, which is stunning. And then there's a, a famous uh, lighthouse, the Butt of Lewis, uh, which was our launch point. And then there's one other island called North Rona, which is some 80 kilometers uh, north of the islands. And that was our last stop off before doing the 200 kilometers across to the Faroes. So you had other... Com- pretty committing crossings i mean that like you said that crossing from north rona to the pharaohs is 80k yeah but when you're when you're doing a 200 kilometer crossing 80 doesn't sound much it doesn't <laughs> sound very much and it's it's purely a psychological thing yeah all right so what went uh, what went well on the trip the the bulk of the trip was actually the trip around ireland mm-hmm. and I, th- I think what I, I love about that is that you're away from uh, any population I think you, life just becomes very, very simple. There is nothing to worry about except getting to where you've planned to get to. And, and you get into a routine very quickly. It's, it's a minimalist life. You can only carry so much kit. And actually, to do six weeks paddling before taking on a big trip was a good plan in, the, in, the, in that you were totally, totally prepared. Uh, obviously, physically, you were well conditioned if you hadn't pushed too hard. But I, th- I think that build-up was important. I-, I probably spent most of it thinking about the the final leg, but the the preparation that you gain w- was was vital. So, although it seemed relatively easy, just pottering up the west coast of Ireland and up through the Scottish Islands, it w- it was vitally important to do that before taking on a massive crossing. All right. And where again was the start point of the whole thing? Well, I actually started on the west coast of Wales. Uh, it's a it's a place called Aberdovey, which is Wales. The west coast of Wales is a sort of inverted sea, and it's halfway down that. And getting across getting across from Wales to Ireland is a, a tricky one because you've got currents. What are they? Seven knots. So you you're not going to be arguing with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, that that was vital. Actually, we we learned our first lesson there because I did that very first day with this um, Mick Berwick as well. Uh, and then he went back to the mainland. But we had a, we'd worked out the times and the time we needed to leave to, to take advantage of the tides, and we, we missed it by 45 minutes. And as a result, we spent three hours going nowhere. It's a good lesson to learn on day one. All right, so you cross from Wales to Ireland. Wales to Ireland, and then around uh, along the south coast of Ireland, past Cork and Freshwater Bay and... And then up the west coast of Ireland, past the Skelligs and uh, the Aran Islands, and then up to Donegal, where uh, had a little bit of an incident uh, with people who weren't weren't too fond of the English. Then from the sort of north of Ireland, hopped across to the Scottish Islands, which are some 40 kilometres, 45 kilometres north of uh, Ratlin, which is the most northern part of Ireland. All right. All right. And then made your way up through there, through the... Uh through the Outer Hebrides to North Rona and to the Faroes. That's correct, yeah. Okay, all right. So let's just skip back for just a minute. Donegal. Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Ireland, Ireland's fantastic, but the, you know, there, are still, there are still troubles over there. And um, 
I remember landing one night. At, it was a place called Malin Head, uh, which is on the on the north coast, and I needed some water, so I knocked on a farmhouse door, and um, was greeted by someone who was, I think he was about a meter high and two meters wide, and and not not very fond of the of of the English. Okay. Um, so I tried to pretend I was Norwegian, but he didn't buy it. Um, but I was, I was then sort of hounded out of the area, but I'd already, I'd already put my tent up and it was evidently on this guy's land down at the beach. So I think that, I think that was the first time since I'd been in the Marines that I actually slept in my sleeping bag with uh, boots on and a rock in each hand. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was, that was quite an experience. Yeah, that got the pulse going, uh, and then and then Malin Head is a very famous tidal area, so that was that was quite an exciting day altogether. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a stunning, stunning country, so it's it's certainly worth a visit. Yeah, yeah. So what what were some of the biggest challenges leading up to that trip? Well, I think I think with most people, the 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 biggest challenge is getting the time off to do it. But I'm. I'm very fortunate. I work as a I work as a broadcaster in in the UK. I cover. Uh, I essentially specialise in winter sport, the cross country skiing and biathlon and ski jumping. And there's not a lot of that that goes on in the summer. So I have a a, a very much reduced work rate in the summer months. Uh, and I, I sort of made it a policy that every summer I would take six months six weeks off to achieve something. And, I, and I've always struggled to do a big trip in two weeks. So suddenly with six weeks, you find you can go quite a long way. So, you know, once I'd established that, then there were no problems leading up to it. It was it, I had the time. I'd sort of slowly built up the equipment over time. And and I think it's just a case of specializing in, in, in the equipment and trial and error, work out what what's good what's not good what do you need to carry get you know i think we all carry too much in our boats and it certainly helps if if there's space for everything and knowing exactly where all the kit is at the same time and and the biggest challenge on all these trips particularly in the uk is is keeping your dry kit dry and if you can do that you have a comfortable journey but once everything's wet it's pretty miserable so the um catamaran boat system that you use for the crossing how did you and mick test that system uh, prior to the trip uh not well enough <laughs> um <laughs> well, well i i think uh, you know when when you're when you do a trip like this you do re rely on the support of lots of other people but their urgency is never the same as yours and i think you have to remember that you know once you've said we're leaving on the 5th of uh, august or whatever it may be they will think delivery on the fourth is all right and so everything arrives late so time for testing was 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 limited but as as it turned out we had we had pretty good conditions and you know you're not going to attempt a, you're not going to attempt a big crossing unless the conditions are good for certainly the you know foreseeable future so what were the conditions like on that crossing we had perfect conditions for the first phase which was from the butt of lewis out to north rona so that was 80 kilometers plus uh it was glassy smooth uh there was a big high system sitting over the united kingdom at that stage and that was forecast to last for 48 hours so we saw that as our our window so an, an easy an easy trip over to north rona we saw far more wildlife than we would normally see simply because it was so flat. Uh, and then we had the similar conditions for the first phase. Now, it was, I think it was about 210 kilometers from North Rona to where we were landing on the Faroes. Although, to be fair, we didn't know exactly where we were going to land. Yeah, so we had 48 hours of calm conditions. And then on the third night we were out, I think I think we did a, a weather check at about seven in the evening and we were just settling down for our two or three hours. We were generally getting two or three hours sleep every trip and we were just settling down for our sleep. A uh, quick ring on the sat phone just to check the conditions. <laughs> and they told us we had we had about 
six hours, six, seven hours to get to the Faroes before a, a 478 was coming in from the northeast. And as we were heading northeast, that was pretty much going to put pay to our chances of getting there. So we then, yeah, we then had to change the plan and, and miss, out, miss out on a, a, sh- a short night's sleep. Wow. And so you made it, I'm guessing. Well, we made it. We didn't get there before the wind came in. We had quite an interesting night on the last night. We packed up, and I guess it was about eight o'clock when we we got going again. Uh, and ra- basically, we were just going to have to paddle all night. But there's quite a lot of the the only vessels you see out there are fishing boats, and things were going well until about midnight when we we had a a fishing vessel close close behind us, but coming towards us. Uh, so we kept an eye on that, but we could see we could see his port light. So we knew he, he we knew he wasn't heading directly at us. Um, but bizarrely, the bearing from us to him never changed. So he was coming directly at us. And when you when you've been going for what was it fifty hours already at that stage, working out what's going on is is particularly difficult. It's it's a bit like you've had three or four pints uh, <laughs> and, and and giving a, a Sudoku p- puzzle or something. It's <laughs> it's very very difficult. Uh, and eventually we worked out that he was actually working uh, in conjunction with another fishing boat. So he was one of one of a pair of fishing boats that were trawling a net between them that was about 10 kilometers long, which is why he was heading in one angle, but actually going in another, if that makes sense. OK, but I mean, he got he got within what 100 meters of us before we managed to make contact and um <laughs> He said, "You, you must be a very small vessel. I can't see, I can't see you on my radar." <laughs> so we had to own up, uh, and we'd actually done the whole trip slightly clandestine, as as it wasn't, you know, wasn't strictly legal. We weren't going to get any support from the authorities, so we'd sort of not told, not <laughs> not warned the coast guard that we were coming. Okay. Then everything was okay after, once we got away from that, and and actually that served as a wake up call because, I'm sh- you know I'm sure you understand it's you're pretty fatigued and what the biggest problem is just staying awake, uh, but that that got the adrenaline going and that lasted for another four hours, uh, at which stage the pharaohs sort of rose up in front of us and it's like you know it's, the west side of the pharaohs are cliffs that I'd never ever seen before it's just phenomenal. But that was about the stage we started hallucinating and we were imagining all sorts of things with the cliffs flying towards us. And uh, we actually got a call from the BBC while we were, we, I think we were 30 kilometres off the coast of the Faroes. Uh, and the call lasted for five or six minutes, in which time we went back two and a half kilometres. And we then paddled for two hours after that before we got back to where the phone call started. Um, so we were then in a massive, massive riptide of uh, the water coming out between the north of Scotland, coming out of the Norwegian Sea, essentially. And it was a difficult decision to make, but we realised that for six hours we were going nowhere um, until the tide changed. So we actually then changed course by 90 degrees and headed for Iceland. But the idea was just to go up the side of the Faroes and hopefully get into an eddy current a fairly giant one, but an eddy current that would uh, sweep us in towards the cliffs, which is exactly what it did. But by the time that happened, the the force seven, force eight winds were coming in, and it's an extraordinary experience there because the the islands are tall, you know, four five hundred meter cliffs. So the wind is coming over them, and by the time it gets to the sea, it's actually just dropping onto the sea, which yeah makes makes paddling fairly tough. So progress was slow, put it that way. So that five-minute phone call, about how much time did that end up setting you back? We took over two hours to get back to where we started the phone call. Okay. Um, <laughs> we did, uh, yeah, we, t- we were taking fairly detailed uh, GPS readings. Uh, and every two hours, we would just check our position. Uh, and, and we'd move 10 meters. <laughs> but in addition to setting you back, two hours to get back to the same spot it also changed the dynamics of uh, of how the the tide was moving and everything else it sounds like it changed that it it changed the uh, 
you know the weather we would have we probably would have just scraped in before the winds hit so you know the two hours it took to get back to the position plus an hour or so uh, of extra paddling to reach to reach the pharaohs so yeah there's there's another good lesson you know don't don't let the media get in the way of things <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned that the uh, the pharaohs had cliffs that you hadn't seen before had you been to the pharaohs prior no never no okay i'd seen pictures we didn't go to the extent of planning exactly where we were going to land because we weren't we knew there was a harbor down the south but we couldn't get to that because of the tide and then you're just going along this massive wall of cliffs looking for an inlet but actually we met a we met a fisherman who was about 20 k's off the coast and he said uh, i'll take you in so we just followed him and for for you know a couple of hours two and a half hours we just followed him in towards and he showed us a nice little cove where we came in and he'd he'd rallied the troops by then the fishermen and and we had a, a nice little reception party which was fantastic they just love adventure yeah i was it, it was fantastic to see so we arrive and within an, an hour of sorting ourselves out and actually learning how to walk again they'd provided us with a a, a pickup truck they'd given us a flat for the week They'd arranged a meeting with the prime minister. Uh, we had a reception on a tall ship with a guy called Trondor Patterson, who was um, uh, an associate of Tim Severin in in his ventures. Yeah, it was like it was like being treated like royalty. It was extraordinary, yeah. and, and and it's never happened again. <laughs> <laughs> so when you uh, when you meet a fisherman and you're twenty k off the coast, and uh, you introduce yourself and he says, "Where'd you come from?" and you and you tell him North Rona. What kind of reaction do you get? He didn't <laughs> blink an eye. He, he absolutely just took it in stride. I have a feeling he might might have been aware because there was quite a lot of radio calls going on. The BBC, I think, which were, had obviously rung round trying to find someone to get some footage as we came in. Okay. So I suspect that he was in the link on the on the local radio. But a lovely guy. I, I don't know if you know uh, Asterix and Oblix over over your way, but he looked like Oblix. You know, he was a huge man with a, you know, I think probably a sort of 150 centimeter waist and and hands to match. Uh, but it was, it, it, yeah, it was a, it was very refreshing. Most most of the fishermen around Scotland don't, they can't swim, so they just think you're bonkers. Uh, and 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 if you if you get a wave, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, with the media having picked this up and obviously contacted you and ringing around and such i'm guessing that the coast guard probably caught wind of this uh yeah uh, but there was the the there were no problems okay there were no problems they, they you know once you've done it you've done it <laughs> they can't <laughs> stop it now <laughs> they, they they can't exactly turn around and say go back well i do i do remember the very first crossing i did here we got an island called st kilda that's about um 80 kilometers off the coast 50 miles mm-hmm it's 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 part of a national park so you when you go you have to book in and they only allow a certain number of number of people uh and i I remember the first time i paddled over there and i'd been waiting for a week for the conditions to be good enough and we arrived and the the island warden said you've come a day early (laughs) (laughs) implying that we should go straight back again but no the the faroese were not like that a bit (laughs) So that crossing from North Rona to the Faroes, um, how much time was that? I think we must have been going for about 92 hours. Wow. 92 hours progress. When, when you break it down to the distance, the average speed is very, very slow. It's only about one and a half knots. Yeah, it was, it was slow. We had the added problem of every time we stopped for drinks or to sleep, we'd go backwards. We always lost two or three kilometers every time we stopped. Although you think you're working hard, I think you you know once once you're sort of just burning your fat as opposed to your carbohydrates which you don't have any left, I, th- I think the pace is pretty slow. So yeah, we were we were disappointed with that, but you know if if we hadn't taken three days, we wouldn't have had as many stories. Sure. <laughs> no, you mentioned your you know, every time you stopped, you'd go backward. Um, how far did you go backward when you took those two or three hours to sleep? We, we had quite a good routine in, in that we drank every 20 minutes, but that was on the move. And we had something to eat every hour. Uh, that was a rule. We stopped for five minutes an hour all the way across. We kept that discipline going all the way, which I think is important. 
and then we would stop really when it got very cold you naturally <laughs> want to go to sleep sort of come 11 12 o'clock the light the light is fantastic we're quite a long way north uh, so the light's fantastic into the evening and um, I guess we were stopped between midnight and four in the morning make some food and then a couple of hours sleep and then get everything sorted try and change change your top so you've got something dry on for the first part of the day and yeah that that four hours was long enough to drift backwards uh it just so happened that we went backwards every time whereas on the next trip every time we stopped we went forwards <laughs> <laughs> um but i i'd I'd done quite a lot of research into the tides uh, and it seems out there that they're really just going around in circles so we we couldn't work out when we should be stopping and when we shouldn't <laughs> so you mentioned uh so preparing some food what did you uh, what did you eat along the way lots of energy bars but you're, you're soon fed up with that hot food is unbelievable so we had a thing called a jet boil i'm sure mm-hmm. you probably have them over your way sure and we adapted a <laughs> a cross-country ski pole <laughs> made of carbon that became a, a sort of a we so we hung the jet boil off that essentially it's, yeah it's not nice to have a flame and a boat and hot water but we we just had freeze dry food so all we had to do was boil a liter of water and then we both had a meal uh and that was the biggest lift of the day without a doubt i bet now did you hang that from the uh from the, the tent system that you had well yeah we just we we had a slot that our ski pole could go in and then we hooked it onto the top of the we'd shortened it down to maybe 80 centimeters uh so we hung it in front of us away from the cockpit uh, and it and it worked f- fine. It was like having a, a sort of top top rate gimbal. <laughs> it's quite an engineering project for this trip, then. Well, the whole thing, yeah. It, um, Heath Robinson, I think, springs to mind. To be honest, I think that's where the fun is, and that's where the time is. You know, you you lie awake at night and you're thinking, how on earth can we do this? And and as I said at the beginning, there is no guidebook telling you how to do these things. So you've got to work it out for yourself. That's the most rewarding part of the whole thing that and making we we took quite a lot of footage made some films of some of the trips and and those two things that definitely uh surpass the actual process of doing the crossings <laughs> what other uh in kind of ingenious systems did you have to develop in order to make this happen well going to the toilet's obviously a big problem sure it's tricky I don't know whether I can tell the story of how it how it <laughs> operates, but you know, over, over three days, you're not going to avoid that. And Mick and I had different ideas on how it should be done. Silicon silicons are good. You know, you can you can roll up a silicon bowl into next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was Mick's choice. But when he came to throwing everything overboard, uh, there was nothing in it, so he'd missed. Ah. Um, <laughs> So uh, we we had issues like that, and and toilet humour's uh, pretty poor at the best of times. But it it sort of it seems extra funny when you're you're a hundred miles off the shore. <laughs> so we had systems for that. Um, nothing nothing else really. The you know the sleeping and the staying dry were the key things. So we spent most time trying to develop that, and we had many many unpleasant nights out. We did develop a drogue. So everything has to be light but strong. So we had a drogue that we put down at night to slow the, the rate of drift. And that, that worked a treat. It was just a, a sheet of maybe uh, a meter squared, uh, like a parachute, definitely worth having. And and if you're in trouble and you're being swept onto shore, it pretty much stops you dead in the water. What else did we have? Nothing really. We just had the standard safety kit, you know, your satellite phone, EPIRBs and um yeah everything everything else was off the shelf okay so what could have gone better either in the lead up or the trips itself uh well the weather could be nice all the way across (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we could have picked up a few more sponsors (laughs) it's but it's quite difficult to sell an idea like this sure yeah i've I've got a friend who works in formula one and even he wasn't interested he said no it's too risky (laughs) <laughs> really <laughs> um but again do you want to be beholden to someone who's given you loads of money to do something no it, it it's lovely to have that freedom to do what you want to do to make your own decisions to feel that 
you know, you don't have to take any risks. No one's paying you to take the risks. It's it's purely uh, just because you're it's from your own motivation. And, and that's quite a nice freedom to have. What would you do different if you did it again? I think I'd probably spend less time training. Um, I think it's very easy to overdo that thinking you've you've got to be able to paddle for, you know, you've got to do lots of one day trips, 12 hours, 24 hour trips. Uh, the only reason in my book for doing the long training is is the psychological aspect. So, you know, you can do it. Other than that, anything over, you know, if you do anything over six hours, you're actually just wearing your body out. Or for the later trips we did, we, we pretty much maxed out at two and a half, three hour trips. Uh, and that proved to be sufficient. So you could say I wasted a lot of time in preparation. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any moments of doubt along the way? And how did you deal with those? Certainly when we crossed the Irish Sea on day one, and you're going backwards. That was the only time I thought maybe we should turn around and, and call it off as a bad idea. You have to have the faith in your tidal sort of research and stuff, but it's quite depressing, you know, paddling one way and going the other. <laughs> and the, the currents in the Irish Sea and up the west side of Ireland are, are ferocious. Uh, we have very, very big tides there. So, um, you know, we, we learned as, as we went along and actually, you have to have to be prepared to, you know, paddle in the dark just to take advantage of the sea, the sea's movement. So what was your longest crossing leading up to this trip? Prior to this, I think probably out to out to St. Kilda, as I mentioned. Yeah, we did a trip in, in the Mediterranean out to Corsica, uh, but that was a, a totally different ball game. Just flat. There, the biggest problem was the heat up north of Scotland that's definitely not a problem yeah St Kilda is a is, is a is a big haul uh, but as I mentioned earlier when we bought when we bought a massive kayaks we ended up just doing an extra 10k each time and you quickly learn that the last 50 the last 10 15 kilometers of every trip even if it's only 20k are hard but that length of time that's hard never seems to get any longer. Um, and, and again, it comes down to the psychology of it. You know, you know, you're nearly there. You're, you're starting to run out of fuel, whatever. So we've done enough, I think, and, and paddling the 80Ks out to St Kilda. Actually, when we did that the first time, the visibility was was appalling. And although we did have a GPS, we we left it on the kitchen table. <laughs> so we did that with just compass bearing we paddled for 11 hours which we thought should have put us an hour past the islands and we decided to do one more hour <laughs> before turning around to go back again uh, and and we were actually saved by the seabirds on that occasion and at St Kilda's a, a bird heaven gannets and puffins and guillemots and millions and millions and millions of them and um we realized that all the ones with stuff in their beaks were flying in the same direction. Uh, so we followed them and they, and they took us straight into the bay. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was uh, a good lesson to learn. Looking back, was it fun? Without a doubt. I mean, I, I've, I'm lucky enough to have skied at the Olympics and back in Calgary in 88. And I can say I'm uh, a factor of 10 more proud of, of, of the paddling trips than of, of achieving that. Does that mean it's fun? Not, nece not necessarily, but the satisfaction that has come from it and the, the good times I've had and shared uh, with other paddlers, absolutely, it's, it's, it's worth every, every ounce of pain. And there are lots of, you know, it's, it's pretty grim. The thought of sitting in a kayak for, for three days now just doesn't, doesn't <laughs> appeal but you know you have to go through these things to get the benefits yeah now someone will re someone will repeat that trip again so what advice would you give to them be patient certainly you know wait for the good conditions i think developing a rafting system is really important because i think that's when it's going to go wrong when you've got two boats side by side the, if the system's going to break, the boat is probably going to break. So I think that needs to be foolproof. And then you're pretty safe. And 
the learning about the nutrition well i say that i think i think that taking on board fluids regularly was one of our keys to success but i i get hideously seasick so there wasn't a lot of eating that was going on yeah the body is the human body is capable of amazing things and uh, you wouldn't think you could paddle for three days on a one bowl of rice pudding but it, it's possible <laughs> so that's quite an accomplishment quite a trip so thank you for yeah, sure. it was <laughs> so you did a, a another route uh, that this prepared you for a few years later tell us about the shetland bus well the shetland bus is a story from the second world war where the the sort of british special forces used to take boats uh, along with Norwegian fighters from Shetland across to Norway. Uh, and, and as I said, we like to pin any expeditions on, on a story. And the Shetland bus seemed perfect for this as it was from Shetland to Norway, which is a trip that we, you know, I, as I said, I used to live in Norway as a kid and I used to go by ferry from uh, UK across to the south of Norway. And I had heard a story of someone who tried to paddle it but failed. So I think from the age of seven, that's something that had been on my radar. And, you you know, you look over the rail on these big ferries and you look at the waves and you look at the distance and you all you can do is wonder, is it possible? So I always wanted to do the route. But then I then I read about the Shetland bus story. There are some incredible uh, books about the heroics of these these agents that basically established the route. And it, we had to go from the Shetlands and we sort of thought we'd head for Bergen, which is where the statue, the sort of main Norwegian involved in all this was a guy called Leif Larsen. Uh, so we named our boat the Larsen and we uh, decided to head for Bergen Harbour, uh, which is pretty much uh, due east of, of the north of the Shetlands. Interesting. And what's the distance for that trip? I think in all it was about 240, 250 kilometres, so a little bit further than going to the Faroes. The North Sea is very different. Uh, the Atlantic, you get a, you know, generally it's southwesterly winds. You get a big swell. The um, wavelength is a couple of hundred meters. In the North Sea, you've got waves coming down from the Norwegian Sea. You've got waves coming up from the south. You've got uh, an input from, from the Atlantic as well. So that it's a very, very confused sea. And as we found out on our first attempt, progress is a lot slower so what happened with the first attempt uh, well the first attempt we teamed up again it was um, Mick Berwick who was my Pharaoh's partner and then we brought on board uh, Ollie Hicks who, who had sort of made his name as an Atlantic rower he was the youngest person and as he he admits he was the slowest person to ever <laughs> row the Atlantic and he's a fantastic guy but he wasn't he he hadn't done any kayaking at all uh, but he rang up and said he was interested in coming. Uh, and normally you'd just say, no way. But but we met up with him in Wales. We had a weekend's paddling and, and what a pleasure to, to be with someone. You know, he's a true man of the sea and he's just the sort of uh, character you want on a trip. He's all, all positive and, and you need that. So the three of us went in singles and we, we paddled for, what, 12 hours? And this is where we first discovered about the North Sea, you know, one, it's cold, two, it's confused. And we essentially used the same systems as we had for the Pharaohs, but they didn't work. So after 12 hours paddling and a night at sea with no sleep, we then decided to, to bail, which is always a difficult decision. But we decided we'd be better off paddling back, which we did. And and. Every time I've tried a, an expedition with three people, it's failed. Yeah, that was another of those. Uh, and then the next time we tried it, it was just me and Ollie. And instead of going in singles, we went in a double. And, and we sort of adapted that slightly to, to cope with the conditions. So how did the trip differ in a double from a single? Well, it's faster, which is, which is nice. You've got someone to talk to and laugh with which is fantastic but we we only had one person steering and that can be a problem anyone who's sat in the front of a double and had nothing to do with the steering it's it's tricky normally you'd put the most experienced paddler in the in the back but ollie is 
Ollie was the only one who was short enough to go in the back once we'd <laughs> shifted shifted all the all the bulkheads around. So that's the way it 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 panned out, and it's it's also a lot heavier. So I think the risk you take with a double is one rolling is is very difficult, and this boat was virtually impossible to roll. And two, if you do come out, you've you know instead of what 150 liters to bail out of your cockpit you've got closer to 350 so you've got a you've got a major prob- problem there so you lose the the catamaran kind of the rafting capability that you had with two singles how did you manage the sleeping and, and such with this boat we did a few trials again and we came up we we actually got a couple of floats off a catamaran yacht uh, and they have airbags that go on top of the mast to stop them going turning turtle and we had four of those um so f- each each of them i think was 80 liters so they were quite big airbags so we'd <laughs> we'd use our last bit of energy for the day blowing these things up and then you put a strop from the boat or the the float under your boat and a fasten it to the cockpit on the other side if that makes sense so if you put one on the left uh, it will stop you rolling to the left, and then you do on that. You do the same on the other side. So each of us had one of these big floats on left and right, but the important thing is that the strop goes under the boat and fastens on the other side. Uh, and the best thing about it is that when a wave hits them, they just fall over, hmm. and then they bounce back up into position. And um, I've never seen anyone else use it, but it, it, it was about as perfect as it could have been. Did you have to modify the boat? Yeah, we um, on our first trip, we discovered that because of the wave formations, your standard freeboard wasn't enough to keep you even vaguely dry. I don't know if that makes sense, but if you've if you've got waves just coming from one direction, generally you'll point the boat into the waves and it will ride over them quite nicely. When they're coming from two or three directions, there's always something that comes over your over your deck and, and basically gets you soaking wet. So on our first attempt, we got wet and cold and we, we, we thought that was a recipe for disaster. So we actually put an extra two inches on the side of the boat, uh, which totally solved the problem of staying dry which was fantastic but it also made rolling the boat 200% harder Um, and in hindsight I think we probably put too much on I think an inch might have been enough Um, it also increased the weight significantly but I I think in hindsight and had we gone over I think we would have had a, a difficult situation you mentioned uh, bulkheads. Did you have to modify the the bulkheads as well? Yeah, we shifted the bulkheads again to enable us to get to get in. And the double is a lot wider beam wise than the than the singles. I was I was able to get pretty much my whole body in into the cockpit. We so we we just shifted them maybe six inches to allow that. And again, we had the we had the removable footplate. We used the same system. So that worked well and enabled us to just just slide in. We we reduced the size of the tent that we used to protect ourselves from the weather, and yeah, that was that was that was about it. That's a that's an impressive trip in itself. Of course, how long did that one take you? Uh, that took, it was all, almost exactly the same. We 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 were out for three days. The sea was rougher. We did. Uh, uh, oh, I tell you what else we did. We 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 actually put a couple of, uh, we had a couple of small sails, mm. kayak sails were just starting to come in. We really put them on, so we could rescue ourselves. We 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 didn't want to be calling out the rescue services. So we we put a we actually put two two sails on the double, and they're not huge, but they they work really well on a broad reach. The idea was that if one of us got sick or one of us got injured, we could get ourselves to land north, south, east or west. We didn't really care where, but we we wanted to be able to make an effort to get ashore. And so that that worked pretty well. How did you navigate? Uh, Just with a compass. And again, GPS, uh, check check the position every two hours. 
it was easy. It was it was due east. Okay. <laughs> You're going to hit <laughs> land <east>. somewhere. <laughs> due east. Yeah. Well, the biggest problem is that the North Sea is full of oil rigs. So mm. you, you're not allowed anywhere near the oil fields. So we had to make sure we missed them. So they're an issue. But the, the supply boats are even more of an issue because they're going left, right and center. So that was our concern when we were sleeping. And um, I don't imagine our radar signal was too strong. Yeah. How did you uh, maintain visibility? Well, the, the idea was that one of us stayed awake, kept a watch and the other slept. Okay. It, did, it it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> After eighteen hours paddling, there's no no way you're going to stay awake. So we we just did again two two three hours, uh, and slept. And as it turned out, we were okay. But that's 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 a problem. You know, we didn't really find a satisfactory problem to that. Other other than I guess than taking a, a reflector that, that that the boats can pick up. Did you have a reflector? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> we had a light <laughs> we had a light but you know yeah it's tricky i mean it, even you know when a kayak's 200 yards off the shore in a in a anything more than the force four it's it's almost impossible to see yeah. so you you are pretty invisible uh and that that's one of the risks you take any close calls for that trip in terms of boats we had a a couple again you're it's it's at night when you're paddling and you're just watching the lights and you you're taking a bearing on the lights. Um, I th I think what we learned is that you you know you may be in a, a small craft but you're the one that gives way because you've got to assume there's no one on the deck. Um, so that happened a f that happened a few times but we sort of were fairly comfortable with that by the end. So your favorite hallucination story from either trip. Well, def definitely the pharaohs. Definitely the pharaohs. Um, I sh there was um, a film a uh, long time ago. It was either called Rollerball or Murderball. And and I can remember approaching the pharaohs and just seeing these boulders fall off the top of the cliffs and then come along a, ra a rail towards the towards the kayak to the extent that I was ducking, ducking left and right to get out of the way of these things. Um and yeah, this it went on for a, it went on for a good hour, hour and a half, um, and and then you know a little bit of water and a little bit of food sort of put pay to them. But they generally come in after <clears throat> what is it, seventy two hours out there with you know seventy two hours of exertion, and then the hallucinations start. So it's it's quite a commitment to get to that stage. Yeah, and those rolling boulders must have been terrifying. <laughs> well. <clears throat> well, once once you've realised it's a hallucination, you can sit back and enjoy it, which I, <laughs> I guess is like other things. <laughs> so, as if as if these accomplishments weren't enough, you made a mention earlier. Um, you're our you are a winter Olympian as well. Well, I was, yeah, many years ago. I think I think you should lose your status after twenty years. That was back in nineteen. <laughs> that was in nineteen eighty eight, and. Um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. But it's, um, you know, it's, we're a non-snow nation. So to, to, to take up a sport that you can't do at home is, <laughs> is pretty is pretty daft. <laughs> now, what was your discipline? I was cross-country skiing. OK. Yeah. So it was tough work. Um, but the, the good thing of it is that certainly the hours of training uh, and the discipline and actually learning to love pain, I guess, has made all the difference when it comes to these these big trips. You know, you, you're certainly not scared of putting in a good shift. So in a non-snow nation, how did you train? Well, I was I was actually in the forces. So we okay. would spend a couple of months a year out on the snow. And then in the summer, we'd uh, just use roller skis, which sure. is what everyone else does. But sure. Um, I think the key thing is that you don't you don't start at the age of six, you know, and, and most most of our team started at the age of 26, okay. uh, you know, so we, we, we were behind the times. But uh, it, it was great opportunity and um, I'm very grateful for it for it. So what's next on your adventurous list? Well, I've shifted sl slightly. I I. Um, Short, I did the Norway trip shortly after getting married and then uh, 
we had a daughter so that sort of cut down the time and uh, going away for six weeks was no longer a possibility and sadly sadly my marriage didn't last which mm. uh, I took pretty badly and I fell out of love with paddling because I had too much time to think um, and it seems a bizarre thing to say but I just I didn't enjoy it anymore I, d I, I didn't want to be out there just mulling over everything that had gone wrong in life so I, I went back to kite surfing and and then got into this new game of foiling on the, on the hydrofoils yes I've spent the last three years uh, developing those skills we're about to set up a, a, a downwind uh, foiling company and you're out on the sea you're doing something that's well in fact last week we did a 50 kilometer downwinder from one island to another um, and it felt the same you know it's it's working out how you're going to do it and it was it was fantastic but i think it's even riskier because you can't really carry very much gear but we're enjoying playing with that and i've got a 10 year old daughter who's uh, just starting to get into into not so much paddling as adventure she likes adventure and so we've started doing some little trips so out to the islands um and it makes me more nervous to take her, but gives me more pleasure to take her than it does doing it myself. Yeah, and to be able to see it through uh, through her eyes as well. Yeah, fantastic. I Wonderful. absolutely love it. Wonderful. Yeah. So um, how can listeners reach you and learn more if they have questions? Well, I'd love it. Love any questions. I will I'll, I generally just work off a, an email address, All right. um, although I'm on most of the other things. So I, I'll, I'll give you my email address. Uh, because that is what I will see first All right. and then I can give a prompt answer. So I'm Patrick Winterton at btinternet.com. That will get that will get the most prompt answer. Okay. And I can include that in the show notes then. So if people have questions about either trip or they want to learn more about foiling and uh, and your downwind <laughs> yeah, company do. as well. Well, <laughs> come and join us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now that you're you're in the process of setting the company up, or is it all we're, going down? No, we're in. Yeah, we're absolutely in the process. We've uh, already. We, we're going to combine it with a square rigger, uh, a tall ship. I, I was actually chatting. I'd been out foiling, and this German uh, German guy came and said hello, and he was asking me about it. And I said, "Well, I'm only really training because what we what we like to do is just go downwind." And he said, well, I've got a boat that's only only any good at going downwind. Uh, and it came from there. So we've joined forces and uh, we're going to take tours in in the square rigger. Um, and, you know, when the conditions are right, throw all the foilers out and then meet them 20, 30 kilometers down the road. So it's, it's exciting times. It's it's quite a high skill level. And we used we used the sort of covid pandemic that we that was the toy we bought at the start, and uh, we we spent many hours out there. Uh, but it, it's a fantastic sensation, and, and just like paddling, you know, you're using the power of the ocean. It, it's like nothing I've ever done before. So we're 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 really excited about it. Well, excellent, excellent. So I'll have to get some information on that, and we'll include that in the show notes as well, so people can uh, follow up and learn more and go from there. Yeah, great. So great. Um, I've got one final question for you, Patrick. It's a question that we ask at the end of our episodes of, of all of our guests, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Well, the the, ob the obvious answer to that is Ollie Hicks. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a classic example of how uh, things develop in a sport, in that he joined us for our Norway trip, the first time having never paddled. We paddled together for two or three years. We did some good expeditions, and... You know, a couple of years later, he did the first trip from Greenland back to Scotland uh, via Iceland. That's an astonishing achievement. But the paddling to Norway for him was normal because that's what we were doing. Uh, so he just took it a step further. And, and he's a great adventurer. So I, I would certainly recommend him. All right. Well, excellent. Well, we'll connect offline. I've actually had a brief chance to talk with Ali previously, and uh, but we'll connect offline and uh, see if we can get him on the show as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, well Patrick, it's been wonderful talking to you today, learning about uh, your trip to the Faroes and learning about the Shetland bus uh, and other exciting developments with the foiling. So I really appreciate your time today, and, uh, and I look forward to meeting at some point in the future. Well, I hope so. And anytime you're in Scotland, come for a paddle. Will do. I look forward to it. 
Cheers, Joe. Cheers. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Two very cool trips, and as I mentioned at the top of the episode, some interesting ingenuity. From using a ski pole to rig up a cooking system, to building a tent that sounded suspiciously like a coffin, and then spending 92 hours in the boat. Well, I really hoped you enjoyed hearing from Patrick. Thanks again, as always, for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.